0: Welcome. I am Sheila Murthy, President and Founder of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. For today's panel, talking about the AC-21 or American Competitiveness in the 21st Century Act, I have with me two of our brilliant attorneys, Alyssa Klein in the non-immigrant department and Kevin Andrews in the Special Projects Department. So... For most of you who are pretty familiar with what AC21 means or have some idea, it's basically the law under which a lot of the H-1B employees are allowed to start working. It's how we talk about the AC21 green card portability provisions, and we'll get into all of those details. But the strange thing about this law is that it was passed back in October of 2000. So it's been, at this point, literally uh, 13 years ago, and still... We don't have any regulations, any official um, document, any official word from the government other than a bunch of memos which only have, you know, marginal enforceability according to different case laws. Uh, We have one memo, uh, one precedent decision, which is the matter of Al-Vazan, which is a 2010 AAO case, where it was held that an I-140 must have been approvable when filed. And it's not enough to simply have the I-485 pending for 180 days for the same and similar job to be el- for a person to be take- eligible under the AC-21 portability provisions. So what all of this means we'll hopefully continue to explain to you as we go over these provisions. But this can, uh, there's also an issue when the I-140 and 485 are filed concurrently. Uh, because there are times when the USCIS may issue a notice of intention to revoke or a notice of intention to deny after the beneficiary has ported to another company. But again, a lot of these issues will be described in greater detail as we go through to this afternoon's session. But I'm going to have Kevin start with... uh, you know, giving a little bit more of the history and background and what exactly has been going on because there have been, you know, tentative proposals or they've threatened to uh, and issue some kind of regulation. So can you just share a little bit of that background with us, Kevin?
1: Sure, Sheila. Thank you. Uh, as you mentioned, there are no regulations for this law uh, called AC-21. However, USCIS has indicated that they have uh, an interest in coming out with regulations. Now, there was a teleconference a couple years ago in July of 2011 where USCIS indicated that they wanted to come out with regulations, and their goal at the time was within 8 to 12 months. So, in federal bureaucracy terms, that means probably a lot longer, and here we are uh, over two years later with still no regulations. But it's a good idea to talk about what they're proposing so that we can kind of get an idea of what Uh, might be coming down the pike later on and to foresee and anticipate those uh, perspective changes. So a couple of things. One, USCIS proposed making AC-21 notification mandatory and requiring a filing fee, so yet another fee, for sending them AC-21 notice. As many of you may know, there are only three requirements for AC21 in the green card context, you have a 45 pending, 180 days or more. New job is same or similar to the old job listed in the original labor, and the new the I-140 needs to be valid and approvable when filed, as Sheila had mentioned. But there's no requirement that you actually notify the government of your use of AC21. So that's an anticipated change that they'll now require that you notify them of it.
0: Though all the memos right from the beginning always talked about the anticipate the expectation that a person would notify them, which is why we've been always taking the position. You do need to notify them, particularly with respect to green card portability.
1: Right. We think it's a good practice to notify them. You always want to check your work to make sure that you are complying. And the best way to do that is to go through the each of the elements to make sure that you are, and to let the government know. As a practical matter, though, at the 485 stage, USCIS is issuing RFEs asking for this stuff anyway if it's been a long delay uh, pending 45 application. But that's one of the things. Another thing that they were proposing is looking at quote a number of published sources and other comparable elements end quote to determine what constitutes same or similar occupational classification. So, in our experience in the past. USCIS has been pretty liberal in its application of, you know, what constitutes a same or similar occupational classification, but it may be, may or may not be, concerning that they are going to rely on now a number of published sources to kind of hone in on what that actually means, so to be continued there. Another proposal is uh, under the Acquia H-1B whistleblower provision, USCIS is proposing to have a grace period for uh, H-1B whistleblowers, you know those those H-1B workers that are putting uh, the government on notice of potential violations, to give those workers a potential grace period so that they can find new H-1B employers. Obviously, there's an incentive there. You want to make sure that uh, there's an H-1B whistleblower is in hurting themselves in the process of notifying the government of some potential violations. And then the final thing that came up in that conference years ago, that may or may not come uh, as a regulation down the road, is extending H-1B for spouses based on the principal H-1B's eligibility for H-1 extensions. Alyssa is going to talk about H-1 extensions and you know being able to extend the H-1B beyond that six-year limit. And so potentially, if this comes out as a regulation the spouses, even though the spouse hasn't met the criteria that Alyssa is going to talk about, may be able to benefit if the principal H-1B spouse has that eligibility. So that's only a situation where you have two spouses working in H-1B status.
0: Actually, and and, and, and as uh, Kevin sort of alluded to it, one of the reasons we thought we would actually get into all of this is very often we've seen that the USCIS tends to look at proposed regulations and then start almost acting like it is a regulation by implementing it, even though clearly, legally, they aren't allowed to do that. Uh, but we've seen that happen from time to time. So we thought it would be useful to throw that out there. So if you get a strange, weird RFE or a notice of intention to deny or anything, at least you'll know the source and why it's happening and where it's coming from. So if we can switch and change gears, uh, Alyssa, Uh, Can you share, since you're the queen of the non-immigrant department, share with our incredible employer audience who are very uh, curious about a lot of how does AC21
2: affect H1B portability and what does it mean? Right, Absolutely. Thank you, Sheila. Um, as Kevin said, right now, the main beneficiary of a labor certification or I-140 does have extension benefits for their H-1B beyond the six-year limit. Now, as we know, the six years is a, is a limit imposed on H-1B status, but AC-21 has two exceptions for this. Um, the first one is one section of the AC-21 law, which is 106c. This allows a beneficiary of an I-140 petition or labor certification that has been filed more than 365 days ago, okay, to have an H-1B extension in one-year increments. Now, something that is important with this is the 365-day issue. That 365 days must have occurred by the time one completes their six years in H-1B, Okay, So it's important to monitor when you're starting your labor certification process to make sure that you're filing that PERM with the DOL and getting your priority date established before you go into your sixth year of H-1B. Now, we all know things happen sometimes. Things get delayed. There might be PERM denials, things of this nature. One, one strategy to keep in mind is that if you retain some portion of your six years of H-1B, and you haven't filed your PERM before you start your sixth year, you could retain those that remainder period of time to pick it up when you do hit 365 days. So you technically have never completed your six years until you use that those last few days. And this has unfortunately
0: been a somewhat recent trend with the USCIs because a year or two years ago, I know we were routinely getting approvals even after the full six years had been used up if the person was had switched to H4 status right. or was legally in the U.S. Exactly. And suddenly, bingo, they've started this annoying new trend of giving a really hard time to employers and employees who,
2: for whatever reason, ended up delaying in filing uh, the PERM before the start of the sixth year. Right, exactly. And you could have a situation where perhaps you had a PERM filed initially and it didn't succeed at the I-140 stage, and then you're restarting the process all over out, out of your first six years. So it is something we've seen recently come up here and there. So it's definitely something to be aware of. Okay. The other thing to keep in mind is you can still, if you have a appeal pending on your labor or your, or your I-140, that still works for the the one-year extension. And a lot of
0: times, even in a weak case, when somebody comes to us and says, well, you know, for whatever reason, my case was improperly filed, the lawyer made a mistake. Obviously, no one from the Murti law firm, usually it's uh, almost 99.99999%, I'm going to say 100% from somewhere else. Uh, we end up saying... Uh, Just file an appeal to buy the time so that the 365-day clock has passed so that you can actually get that one-year H-1 extension. Now, as uh, Alyssa alluded to, that's the one-year H-1 extension. And as many of you may already be aware, the three-year H-1B extension is allowed when the beneficiary or employee has an approved I-140 petition and the priority date is is not current, then you get three full years on the H-1B. And, uh, Alyssa, what are the other considerations to remain in the U.S. past the sixty? Right,
2: right. If uh, you don't have either of these two options available and you just you know, are not able to depart or don't wish to depart the U.S., uh, there are other things to consider. Um, One thing to consider is recapture. So while you were on H-1B, any time physically spent out of the U.S. can be added back on, and that can further extend your H-1B And if, again,
0: on this, we remember years ago they wouldn't do it. Maybe it was before some of your times, but they would say, well, if you've gone on a two or three week vacation, that's considered par for the course. That's normal. That's natural. That's we're not going to add that back till they the government had to be sued, mm-hmm. lost the lawsuit. We won, meaning we employers, employees won. And we were able to recapture that time. Right. Every single day outside can now be recaptured.
2: Now, and it's a valuable tool. So mm-hmm. people should definitely monitor their travel dates and keep records of these things. Mm -hmm. Uh, And sometimes you may not have an option to stay in H-1B and you have to consider alternative non-immigrant classifications, such as the dependent of a spouse, if you have a spouse in perhaps L-1 or H-1 or even F-1, to switch to a dependent status. um, Or an alternative uh, independent non-immigrant classification.
0: Okay, Uh, Kevin, if I can switch to you. Is an approved extension of stay request based on Section 106C or 104A that Alyssa and I just described, would that be still valid even after the case has been denied, the green card case?
1: Yeah, Sheila, that's a great question. I often get this in consults where people ask, well, what if the H-1B petition is filed based on, you know, I have an approved I-140 with a non-current priority date. Let's go with that example. And then after that, something happens to the green card Uh, case and it's denied for whatever reason, am I going to lose now the three additional years? You know, I'm in my seventh year. Am I going to lose those three years after it's been approved? And USCIS in uh, a teleconference a few years ago very clearly indicated that you would still have that time as long as the H-1B petition were, at the time the USCIS adjudicator sat down to look at it, there's a valid and approved I-140 non-current priority date. Uh, you are eligible for that three years of time, and even subsequent to that adjudication, if the green card case is denied, you know, dies for whatever reason, you still have that time available to you. They're not going to give you that time and then take it away. However, though, the critical thing is you need to have a new green card case in place before the next time you know comes up for an extension. So. At before the end of that three year period, you're going to have to have a new green card case, the backup case in order to be able to continue remaining here on h1b while your green card case is going. So as you mentioned before, filing an appeal or uh, filing an appeal on a on a labor or an i140, there's a clear strategic advantage for doing that as a transition, a kind of you know putting the case on life support to transition you into more h1b time until your new green card case can, uh, fully mature and be the basis for your next extension. So, again, at the time that the H-1B is adjudicated, when the officer is looking at it, you need to have met one of the requirements out of the one-year rule that Alyssa was talking about or the three-year rule that Sheila was mentioning. Um, and at that snapshot, it needs to be valid. But subsequent to that, if there's a denial of that green card case, you're still eligible for that time. So that's a really clear uh position from USCIS that's very helpful to a lot of employers and employees.
0: And what they've possibly even done, which is, again, a very clever strategic move that you might want to discuss if you're not using the the incredible team at the multi-law firm, which I'm hoping most of you are, uh, is, in, in fact, if the person even switches and maybe changes the employer to another employer, that time that you've got, the three years, You might actually be able to transfer those dates, but we're getting a little aggressive and creative, and we've actually won many of those cases. So you cannot just lock it even without uh, an approved LC or the case has been denied. We've used those three years or two and a half years or whatever is remaining and transferred to another employer again. Uh, if your lawyer doesn't know about it, you know the best law firm in the world to use for that process. Okay, so the next issue we want to touch upon is cap exemption for institutions of higher education and nonprofit government research organizations, or a related or affiliated nonprofit entity. So under AC twenty one, under the same law that we just talked about, there's a section called the Section one hundred three, which says that the cap, the numerical limit. On H1s would not apply if there is an institution of higher education, as defined in Section 101A of the Higher Education Act of 1965, or a related or affiliated nonprofit entity of such an institution of higher education, or a nonprofit research organization, or a governmental research organization. So, Alyssa, what does this have to de- deal How, wh- Why is this relevant? for an employer uh,
2: in terms of the H-1B and AC-21 provisions? It's important because what we've seen uh, somewhat recently in 2011 is a shift really in how USCIS is handling its policy on specific cap exemption issues. Uh, And and I think the most notable one to discuss is uh, USCIS in March of 2011 announcing that it was going to review its policy for permitting cap exemptions for entities related or affiliated with an institution of higher education. Um, they did say that they would continue to give deference to prior decisions based on a 2006 memo, but they have not to date come out with any further policy or guidance. Um, so it is important, certainly, if you are not one of these employers that received the prior approval under this exemption, To pay attention to the March 2011 um, comments by USCIS, Uh, they stated that the nonprofit entity that is connected or associated with an institution of higher education, and this is important, through shared ownership or control by the same board or federation, operated by an institution of higher education, or attached to an institution of higher education as a member, branch, cooperative, or subsidiary. And I know that's a lot to consider, but it's important to really look at the documents uh, that solidify the arrangement between the two parties. It is going to be important to really make sure that you have that shared control and, um, you know, documented in some sort of written agreement. Um, Also, until 2010, USCIS really was more lenient on the interpretation of the memo on cap exempt cases filed by hospitals affiliated with universities, you wouldn't even need to submit these agreements. It would be enough to perhaps share the information that's publicly available on on the websites. Um, but again, this has changed. Uh, the announcement also didn't clarify the situation, like I said before, where the petitioner had not previously received an approval under this exemption. Uh, so it's just a caution companies moving forward, uh, you know, to really make sure you have everything documented and to be aware that it it could be scrutinized more closely than these cases have in the past. Um, You know, lastly, they did state that if an employer had previously filed a case as an exempt employer, uh, that they are not allowed to file as a CAP subject employer uh, unless there has been a change in the company. So they're really saying you either are or you aren't. And but you
0: why can't would have the it both employer ways? want to
2: do, do it both ways? You wouldn't necessarily want to, but if perhaps the company um, was concerned with being able to prove that they were, and it, they're just not going to let you jump back and forth between saying you are and you aren't. Quite honestly, if you're saying you aren't, you're hurting your ability to say that you are in any other cases where it could be advantageous to be cap-exempt. For example, if you want to bring a higher on outside of the fiscal quota limitations, if the H-1B cap's already been used up. So it is more advantageous in that to respect be exempt. to be exempt. So it is important for, for companies to be consistent.
0: Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, if I can switch back to you now, Kevin, and to ask you a little bit about what is this Section 214N, which allows for H-1B portability,
1: yeah, so one of the things that AC 21 law did was allow for an H-1B worker, who's already someone who's already in H-1B status, changes to a new employer. The new the worker can start working for that new H-1B employer upon the filing of the H the new H-1B petition, as opposed to previously they had to wait until it was approved. So this is something that's probably attractive to a lot of employers looking to attract talent, uh, foreign national talent, because. Generally speaking, I would imagine a lot of those work, employers would want those workers to start sooner than later. So this kind of creates a convenience to allow that worker to start working upon the filing of that H-1B petition, not having to wait until it's approved. But as we have seen, there's some some risks and some caveats to uh, to that. Convenience that yeah, the law provides. For sure,
0: for sure. And, you know, as, as many of you may have already noticed, with the much, much stricter interpretation, for example, of the employer employee relationship, the right of control, which has become quite a nightmare for over three years at this point, uh, the risk is if you have the employee start working for your company uh, based on H 1B portability provisions of Section 214N of AC 21 and the petition ends up getting denied, um, then what happens is the person is now out of status or unlawfully present, uh, isn't allowed to work. Now, if the original employer uh, had not withdrawn or revoked its earlier petition approval, um, and if they are willing to do so, the employee, the beneficiary, may actually be able to return back to the original employer and get back in some kind of status because the USCIS has issued, again, some memos on this issue, but again, there's no clear-cut statutory or regulatory provision addressing this issue. Um, Alyssa, I know that we're getting into a little bit of a gray area with AC21. We're getting into issues that may be complex, but to add to that, there's issues of
2: bridging that we've talked about. Can you explain a little bit of that? Right, bridging is an even more risky situation for someone to end up in, and what's important to remember is that one in non-immigrant status should continually maintain that status. Bridging is if you're working for company A, and then you use portability to work for company B. But before Company B's petition is approved, you then move again to Company C. Now you've created a bridge because Company C's petition cannot be approved with a status extension for the person unless B's is. And obviously once the person has left Company B, they may not have an incentive to perhaps respond to a request for evidence, file a motion to take any action to to further that case to an approval company b
1: might also withdraw it
2: company b could also withdraw it and then you're left in a situation where much like sheila the situation you described the person is without status that company c's petition is not likely to be approved with an i-94 card and you're faced with being unlawfully present having to leave the country obtain a new h-1b visa and then come back in to legally work for company c Okay.
1: Yeah, and actually that touches on uh, a problem that we often see in our Special Projects Department with the unlawful presence issue, because let's say the H-1 worker's I-94 card has expired by the time they're at Company C, you know, the there are memos that say that a person's in a period of authorized stay while those H-1B filings are pending. But if the I-94 card has expired and then Company B's case is ultimately denied, Well, now it's treated as though the person, the H-1 worker, has been unlawfully present since the expiration of that I-94 card. And as many of you may be familiar with uh, that concept, if you accrue more than 180 days of unlawful presence and leave the United States, that person triggers a bar of three years from re-entry into the United States. That bar increases to a 10-year bar of re-entry if the person accrues more than 365 days of unlawful presence. So, you know, the... It's a it's a big risk to, you know, moving before you have a final adjudication on these cases for these reasons.
0: For sure. And, and, you know, and so the safest, the most conservative approach is really ideally if one can help it, if one can wait, which sometimes I understand in the world of business, it may not be practical is to actually obtain the H-1B petition approval, so even though you have the benefit of H-1B portability under AC-21, you go back to the old pre-AC-21 law, which required you to obtain the petition approval before starting work, uh, before the employee joins the new employer. Um, Obviously, we still have the premium processing option, which I sometimes refer to as legal bribe to the government because of their incompetent and excessive delays in processing cases. Uh, but it does serve the purpose in a critical situation where there's time-sensitive deadlines and in this day and age where everything is so speedy and prompt and efficient, getting filing that premium processing case, paying that $1,225, getting the adjudication done hopefully within 15 calendar days, assuming that there is no RFE or annoyed or whatever, and then have the employee work with the company would make so much more sense. Alyssa, what about the portability based on the PERM and I-140 filed by an employer that's a different employer from the H-1B employer?
2: Right. This sort of combines this portability issue we were just talking about, as well as the first issue of the seventh-year extensions that we talked about at the beginning. Um, you, you might be moving to a new employer, but you can utilize your prior employer's PERM or I-140 for the basis of a seventh-year extension. Okay however keep in mind that timing is still critical and the basis for your extension your i 140 have to remain valid or alive if you will until the time of the adjudication so if you do move to another employer depending on where your case is the prior employer could withdraw or again if there's a denial they may no longer have the incentive to file the appeal to keep that case going. So another reason to perhaps file for premium, wait for the approval before going to a new employer. Mm. Yeah, in my
1: experience, uh, a lot of people are surprised to hear that you can use the green card case filed by company A as a basis to extend your H-1B you know, beyond that six-year limit with a with company B. Um, so but a lot the of risk is that, that
0: in case the petition has been withdrawn and we don't know that, the I-140 petition, so you file it and it takes five or six months for USCIS to process. In the meantime, the employer, because they're having an ability to pay issue on the I-140, decides to revoke it and you're stuck with nothing. So that's why in those cases particularly, even though I hate giving the government more, much more money than they need to get, the premium processing fee at that point would make sense, especially the person the individual employee doesn't have a new green card case that would make that person eligible for either the one-year H-1 extension or the three-year H-1 extension. What about portability issues, um, Kevin?
1: Well, another portability issue comes up in a situation where a worker previously held H-1B status but has changed to a different status and is now trying to change back to H-1B status. The most common scenario that I think we see is someone was previously in H-1B Files a change of status to H four. Maybe they have a spouse who's in H one B and, you know, can't find work for whatever reason at that time, so they change to H four status, looking for a job, finally come to to the employer who has a job for them, and now they want to file they wanna go back into H one B status and the employer says, Well, hey, come start working for me upon the filing of that H one B because this law allows it. Unfortunately, USCIS takes the position that someone who was previously in H one B status but is not currently in H-1B status, can't start working for the new employer under that provision that normally would allow for it upon the filing of the H-1B petition, but rather must wait until the H-1B petition is actually approved. So the situation where you're going from H-1B to H-4 to H-1B again, you really have to wait until that, H-1, that new second H-1B is approved before starting to work. But as we had mentioned, there's a whole lot of practical reasons why you should probably do that anyway.
0: And the strange thing is the actual statute itself in AC21 law, which uh, Kevin just mentioned, is it really needs... It actually says if the person was ever previously on... uh, um, had an H-1B status or a visa approved, the person is able to enjoy the benefit of H-1B portability. But because of e- the e-verify provisions, um, that actually caused the complications because the government wasn't able to, I guess, track it as easily and give you the tentative, non, you know, whatever, give you the permission to work. So they came back and actually voided it. This is one of those provisions that I think if we were to sue the government in a a proper case, we could actually win if, God forbid, we need to. And uh, by the way, you don't need, most people assume that you would need tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars to sue the government. Welcome to America, the great land, the great democracy where you can sue the government, do it within a very reasonable budget and actually live to share your success story and with whom would you do that with the Murthy law firm of course because we have an amazing litigation team that does it for legal fees that people don't even believe is possible it's almost like filing an h-1b petition it's a little bit more than filing an h-1b petition to file again a lawsuit and we win more than 90 percent of the lawsuits majority of them which yep. is amazing
1: right Shail, i think you're absolutely right i think that there's a struggle there with wrapping you know the technology of e-verify and all that around the law and even though the plain language of the law, I think, is inconsistent with this policy position that USCIS is taking, uh, you know, it's just convenient for them to read it the way that they're reading it. And sure, there's definitely an opportunity to uh, to litigate that issue because just because. There's a technological barrier there. It doesn't mean the plain language of the law can be ignored.
0: Sure, sure. Okay, so we've really, really gotten into the nitty-gritty and details on the H-1B process so far and all kinds of gray areas and how to help you as employers figure out whether we can take advantage of it. Uh, of getting an H-1B and changing and getting the best employee to help you accomplish your goals. Now we're going to switch gears a little bit and do the AC-21 and green card portability provisions. And you may wonder about why does it bother, why should it affect me as an employer because the employee is coming along. Uh, partially, if not completely, because you, as the employer, would end up could end up losing a valued employee if the employee is unable to stay and continue working for you, you for your company based on the EAD and based on having taken advantage of the AC Twenty One Adjustment of Status Portability provisions. So, as most of us know, uh, an employee can join the company, a new green card employer, if. The employee has an approved valid I-140 petition. The I-485 has been pending for 180 days or longer. And the new job is considered in the same or similar job occupational classification. Um, So what happens when the employee very sweetly and innocently changes jobs, changes employers, and the earlier green card sponsoring employer uh, either decides to revoke the I-140 petition because of the ability to pay issue on the I-140 on another I-140 for a different employee, or um, they get a notice of intention to revoke the previously approved I-140 for this same employee that has now joined your company. And the earlier employer says, well, the person's left me. Why the heck should I waste, you know, legal fees or anything bothering to answer it? What, what ends up happening if that happens, Kevin?
1: Uh, Yeah, that's that's a great question, Sheila. You know, AC21 in the green card context is a really good benefit for employers because the uh, an employer can go through the process the labor the i140 and all that sponsoring a worker and then a new employer can take advantage of the work done already on that case by stepping into the shoes of the prior green card sponsor as long as the worker meets the three criteria that you had mentioned but as you said what if the prior i140 ultimately gets revoked the government says oh we we approve this, but we shouldn't have for these reasons. And tell us why we should not proceed with revoking. Otherwise, we're going to revoke. That original employer probably doesn't have an incentive to respond to that I one that that notice of intent to revoke. Um, we brought this very issue to uh, USCIS's attention. The Murphy Law Firm did a few years ago and requested that they inform their officers or implement a standard practice that would inform the I one forty beneficiary, the the, the worker. Of the issues in the I-140 through the the 45 case, so obviously there needs to be a pending 45, 180 days or more for anyone to be able to even use AC-21. So our suggestion was, hey USCIS, tell the worker in the context of their pending 45 case that there is an issue and they have may may or may not have the opportunity to address that issue. I can say from experience that uh, to the extent that those issues are something that the employee has the ability to even respond to we've seen that uh, USCIS has actually to some degree implemented that and we'll see notices of intent to deny or maybe at least just an RFE on the four eighty five saying, hey, the I one forty was revoked, maybe they'll give us a little bit of reasoning behind it and um, you know, kind of put the four eighty five applicant, the employee, on notice of the derogatory information about their case. As a practical matter though, I can say though that, you know, what if that issue has to do with financials, ability to pay? Well, you know, the employee is not gonna have Much information about the original employer's uh, financials, uh, maybe not even their current employer. So, as a practical matter, it's 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 one of the risks of using AC21. If USCIS revokes the case for a substantive or attempts to revoke the case on a substantive basis like that, because the worker and their subsequent AC21 employer probably aren't equipped with the information to adequately respond, and if the original employer has no incentive or desire to do so. Um, it's a sticky situation that probably doesn't have a good result.
0: Yeah. Uh, It's true that the employee obviously will have very, very little control um, with respect to an I-140 petition that by federal law, both the labor certification and I-140 belong to the employer. However, uh, if the employee does get a 485 notice of intention to revoke or a denial, uh, Multi law firm, we have been successful in challenging the government and winning most of those cases to say, hey, the person was able to take advantage of the AC21 portability provisions. Uh, so, Alyssa, I, I know we're kind of getting short on time and we're always mindful of the time frames um, to respect everybody's busy day that we try to keep it between 30 and 45 minutes,
2: but can you just briefly go over what are the risks and what happens, and when can they take advantage of the uh, AC-21? Right. Well, as Kevin explained, if the government, if USCIS finds uh, out that there are substantive reasons um, to deny an I-140, unfortunately, the individual is simply going to lose those AC-21 benefits. You're not going to get the extensions anymore. You're not going to get the portability. And if you've filed a 485 based on that, it's your, you know, you're know you not going to be able to use that. However, the, gov- the USCIS is more generous in a case where the employer simply chooses to withdraw the petition on their own at some point down the road, seeing as the employees moved on. The employer is is not required to withdraw, but they have the option to do it. And if the withdrawal occurs absent these findings by USCIS of derogatory information, then in general, the 485 applicant can still be eligible for adjustment um, of the 485 uh, that's been pending for more than 180 days, provided, of course, that they meet the portability requirements that Kevin and and you, Sheila, have laid out earlier today. Yeah.
1: So essentially, I think USCIS is saying a withdrawn I-140 is still treated as valid and approvable for AC-21 purposes as long as that, you know, withdrawal, as long as the revocation was based on just that procedural withdrawal. So there's a revocation based on substance, which is what I was talking about. That's a problem but a revocation based on a procedural basis like a withdrawal should be okay as long as you meet those other criteria and
0: and, the, and, and a lot of times when it's substantive they usually somehow tie it up to fraud and connect mm-hmm. it and say oh we're really doing it because you promised the employee something but you didn't mean it or the employee promised to work with you in a particular location but that person didn't even work for the last 10 years one day in that location so they might be fraud so we tell people if there are those issues be very careful because you could end up losing your priority date the employer could be subject to scrutiny on their other cases the employee would suffer so there's huge huge issues what about the issue the the question uh, Kevin about Uh, If the employer withdraws or revokes, decides to request a revocation from USCIS um, prior to the 180 days or after the 180 days, is there any difference?
1: Yeah, Sheila, there absolutely is a difference. So again, one of the requirements for... Uh, AC-21 is that the 45 needs to be pending 180 days or more. So I always tell my clients at call and and when I have consultations about this issue, your ability to use AC-21 vests within you once you've met that 180-day mark. But at the time, you need to have a valid and approved I-140. So the short answer is if the I-140 is withdrawn before you reach the 180-day mark on the 45, that's a problem, and that's not a valid and approved I-140 for AC-21 purposes. But, if the I-140 is withdrawn by the company after the 45 has been pending for at least 180 days, that's still considered valid for AC-21 purposes. So, there's a clear distinction between the outcome of a 40, uh, an I-140 being withdrawn before 180 days and after 180 days.
0: Hmm. What about that whole issue of approvable when filed, though, because, I mean, the government and I know we're again getting into really gray areas because the government has said if it was approvable when filed, even if it's withdrawn and the 485 is spending more than 180 days, the way the AC21 law is written, you're fine, you're hunky dory, you can coast. Now, obviously, the risk increases where the employer decides to revoke it prior to the 180 days there's, you know, almost much, much less risk if the revocation is after the 180 days. It's a much greater risk if it's before that. So we're just going to throw that out there. We're not planning to, because this is one of those where, you know, it's a little bit circular. It's like the chicken and the egg argument where we could go in circles.
1: Yeah, I think you're bringing us back to our original point that we have AC21 law, which we've had for over a decade, but we have no AC21 regulations. So that's an issue to that we would, you know, zealously advocate about because there's no clear answer AC Twenty One Law, uh, we have a clear law. Uh, we have clear law, but we don't have a very clear application because of all these different scenarios that can come up that create all these gray and nebulous, uh, you know, outcomes. So I agree.
0: And 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 you know, to really try to conclude and wrap up, I mean, we obviously still don't have any kind of comprehensive immigration reform uh, as of early October twenty thirteen uh, because the government has. You know, the House of Representatives is on completely a different path than the U.S. Senate, which has approved the Senate Bill 744 with comprehensive immigration reform. The House has come out clearly stating that they will not endorse any form of comprehensive immigration reform bill. And in fact, they want to at- attach and attack it piecemeal, uh, focusing particularly on border security and issues that don't really concern most of U.S. Em- employers that sponsor. Uh, foreign nationals and the high-skilled uh, professionals um, but there's a lot that might happen there's still a window of opportunity between the fall of 2013 and very early in 2014 because after that in later in 2014 the focus is going to be on elections and making sure that they get re-elected so that might be their focus though getting re-elected with millions of new immigrants and a huge in a population that generally favors pro-immigration reform of some kind to help people, because America is a nation of immigrants, is certainly on the table. But that's another discussion for another day. For today, on behalf of Alyssa Klein, Kevin Andrews, myself, Sheila Murthy, and our entire Murthy Law Firm team, we are delighted and honored that you could join us on this fascinating discussion on AC21 law, on the law pertaining to H1Bs, green cards, and the ripple effects on everything else. And as always, if you need the best immigration law firm that can do great work at a great value and keep you and your company safe so you can focus on your core uh, work, you know whom to contact. The world's leading and the world's most popular legal website, murti.com and our incredible team here at the Murti Law Firm. Thank you again. Have a fantastic day and we look forward to helping you soon. Bye.